morning, uh, I got accused of how convenient it was that I was preaching this Sunday and not next Sunday during the World Cup final. <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with the Lord working in our favor sometimes. <laughs> Don't have to put that on me, all right? It's good to be uh, gathered together this morning. Um, worshiping Christ. We have in front of us uh, just a fascinating text. I'm excited to get into it with you all. Before I do that, I do want to just, uh, again, welcome the children that are here in the service. It's great to have you all. I'm glad you guys are able to join us. We even got, you know, colored pencils coming down to the front here. So that's, that's a part of having the children in the service, man. Um, but really, if you think about it as a, as a body together, um, we have one time each and every week, where most of us all collect and gather, and that is a Sunday morning worship service. And it'd be unfortunate if the children were never a part of that for the whole service, right? And so we've intentionally um, created these opportunities for children to, throughout the year, uh, for children to be in there with us. And so it's good to have them uh, in the service with us. And I think um, they'll be thankful for the fact that I feel like I can already taste uh, the pulled pork sandwiches. So I'll try to move as fast as I can uh, through this service. I actually want, as we get into our text this morning, I want to help set up our text with a question uh, from Matthew chapter 18. If you look back at Matthew 18 and the very first verse, the disciples asked Jesus a question. They said, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Seems to me, I don't know about you guys, but seems to me like a pretty bold question, right? Maybe some of you children in here are thinking, I've actually thought of asking my parents that question before. Like, come on, dad, mom, who actually is the greatest? Um, it was a pretty bold question, right, to ask of Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? As we know, Jesus goes on to explain, actually, that the greatest are those that are, in fact, like children. Our text this morning falls in a series, though, of explanations to this question. So this is a continuing answer to that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If Jesus can provide an answer to this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If Jesus can provide an answer to this question, then we will also have a good understanding as to the core values of that kingdom, right? If you can identify in any one kingdom who is the greatest, then you have a pretty good picture of what this kingdom is all about. That's what we want to figure out this morning. What is the kingdom of heaven all about? And who is its greatest? The answer, if you put 18, 19, and 20 together, I think is pretty simple. The answer to that question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, is those who are last. The last are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you look at Matthew 19:30, where we started our reading, and if you look at 20, chapter 20 and verse 16, Jesus states, so the last 
will be first, and the first, they will be last. I think the only time in life I've actually really heard this used um, was when I was a kid and you're like fighting for the front of the food line and somehow like some of the kids didn't get to the front and got to the back and they're like, you know, the first will be last as if that was going to help them in some way or not. I don't know. It didn't work out very well for them. I don't think it's what Jesus has in mind either. But to put it very plainly, Jesus is saying, when he says the last will be first and the first last, Jesus is plainly saying that the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of this world. And when I say the kingdoms of this world, I do not have in mind any one particular kingdom or every single political government or kingdom that has ever existed. Neither do I intend to say that the kingdoms of this world are completely incapable of making kingdom of heaven-like decisions. Surely there have been kingdom of heaven-like decisions made by kingdoms of this world and even good governments throughout history. What I mean when I say the kingdoms of this world is that the overwhelming sweep of political powers today and throughout history do not value the vulnerable like the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying that the kingdom of heaven does not have the same values as the kingdoms of this world. Those who are first in the kingdom kingdoms of the world are last in the kingdom of heaven. Those who are considered worthless in the kingdoms of the world are actually, though, the greatest in the kingdom of God. The history of the kingdoms of this world have been driven, as we know, by the pursuit of power and wealth, prestige and fame, and thus the kingdoms of this world value those who can advance those agendas. The kingdoms of this world do not value human beings that detract from the pursuits of power and wealth and fame. And this is where the kingdom of heaven steps into the scene. This is where the kingdom of heaven comes into our world. The kingdom of heaven is not simply another option in comparison to the kingdoms of this world. As if we have many kingdoms to choose from, the kingdom of heaven is one of them. Which do you like best? No. The kingdom of heaven is completely opposite and in contrast to the kingdoms of this world and comes to us by saying, choose the kingdoms of this world or choose the kingdom of heaven. Those who say children are last. Those who say the poor are last. Those who say that those with cognitive limitations are last. Those who say rich young men because of their wealth in chapter 19 are first. All of them, none of them, properly represent the kingdom of heaven. They, in fact, represent the kingdoms of this world and are no different. In the kingdom of heaven, you must understand, the last are first, and the first are last. 
It's why Isaiah prophesies when he thinks of God's new world held out for him. He says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. This idea of last being first would have been no surprise to Jesus' mother, Mary. Listen to her song. Mary sings, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away. With this song of Mary, it would have been no surprise for her to hear her son say, the last shall be first. In fact, this would have been the fulfillment of her joy that God is exalting those of humble estate, those who the world deems last. Mary would not at all have been surprised the sound of her son proclaiming, the last will be first and the first last. In the kingdom of heaven, in the world of the kingdom of heaven, even its best followers, the disciples, they are rebuked for denying children access to the king. In the kingdom of heaven, it is difficult, according to Jesus in chapter 19, for a rich person to enter, but not impossible. In the kingdom of heaven, when even one sheep of a hundred strays, the king goes looking. In the kingdom of heaven, there is forgiveness of sins among its citizens. This is the kingdom of heaven, which stands in contrast to the kingdoms of this world. In and through Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has come to abolish death. Name one kingdom of this world that has been able to do away with death. The kingdom of God comes through Jesus. Jesus comes to earth as the physical presence of that world, the kingdom of heaven. That is why Jesus states the time in his early and on his ministry in Mark, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God as it comes to us does not come to us, or I'll say the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, which Jesus uses interchangeably, does not come to us as a fanciful world made up of immaterial beings that live in a state of worklessness and ambitiousless bliss. 
That is not the kingdom of heaven. No, this is a real kingdom with a real king that has been promised from the Old Testament and makes itself realized in the New Testament in Jesus and is still longing for a day when it will all be fulfilled, when the kingdom of God will fill the entire world, the new heavens and the new earth, a kingdom like the world has never seen. So the question we have before us as we continue to think about these contrasts is what is the kingdom of God like? Jesus goes into a parable to tell us what the kingdom of God is actually like. First thing we see, when the last are first and the first are last, those who work the hardest are tempted to begrudge the generosity of God. In the kingdom of heaven, those who work the hardest are tempted to begrudge the generosity of God. So what is the kingdom of heaven like? Well, look at your text in front of you as we look at the parable. I'll reiterate the parable for us. This morning, we see a master of a house who owns a vineyard, right? Master of a house owns a vineyard. The story starts early in the morning, so most likely around 6 a.m. The master of the house goes out around 6 a.m. to look for workers to work in his vineyard. He finds some, and these workers, uh, potential workers, are very agreeable. He says, if you'll work for one denarius, if you'll work all day, I'll give you a denarius uh, for your wages, for your work. And they said, that's fair, right? So at this point, from everything we can tell, uh, that one denarius was about a day's wage for a labor worker in fields. So this was a fair deal for them. So they say, yes, we'll work for the full day for one denarius. Well, the master of the house goes back and looks for more workers. He goes back at the third hour, around 9 a.m., a few hours later, wants some more workers. So tells the workers and says, uh, will you go into work in my vineyards for me, in my fields? And they say, yes. What's interesting is, according to the story, Jesus doesn't really necessarily agree to a denarius. He just says, whatever I deem right, I will give you. And so they assume it will be a fair wage. And so they say, yeah, sure. So they agree and they go to work in the field. Then we also have the master of the house going out a third time and a fourth time, the sixth hour and the ninth hour at noon and 3 p.m. and does the same thing. Goes out, looks for workers, they agree, they go out into the field. It gets weirder. He goes out at the 11th hour around 5 p.m. and is still looking for workers when there's maximum two, maybe only one hours of work left for the day. But he goes back out Asked these workers why they haven't gone into the fields, and they said, no one's offered us work. So he says, well, I'll give you work. You go to the fields and work. So they go and work. Well, the scene continues, and as Jesus tells the story, it's now evening. The evening has come. The master doesn't go out this time. He just tells his foreman. He says, you go out into the fields, collect all the workers, and pay them their due wage. So what is... The foreman do exactly what the master told him. Except what's interesting is you would think the workers from 6 a.m. who have been laboring in the scorching sun all day could be offered their pay and compensation first, right? 
so that they can get on and leave. I mean, it's only fair. They've been working all day. But no. The foreman is told to pay those who go out at the end of the day first. And what does the foreman give those who went out at the last hour? He gives them a denarius. Interesting, right? Because that's what the people that went out, the workers that went out at 6 a.m. agreed to. Okay, so he gave them a denarius. I, you know, you can imagine the early morning workers thinking, I think we got it coming to us. <laughs> I mean, he gave them a denarius. Imagine what we're going to get. But the sixth-hour crew and the ninth-hour crew come, and they get the same thing. So maybe the first-hour workers are thinking, well, the first half will pay the same, and maybe the second half will pay something different. But the 9 a.m. workers come for their pay, and what do they get? The same thing. Now put yourself in the mind of the 6 a.m. worker. You're thinking, surely <laughs> this pattern is not going to continue right? Like, dude worked like one or two hours and got a denarius. I've been out here in the scorching sun all day. I'm going to get more than a denarius. That's cool that he's going to give me more than what was agreed upon. But what's given to the 6 a.m. workers? One denarius. Surely they thought they would receive more. And what is their response looking back at our text? Verse 10. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, now what's interesting is the foreman goes out to make the payments. So somehow, these workers got the ear again of the master of the house. So not sure what all happened there, but the master of house made himself available again, even though he didn't, make the, he didn't go out to make the payments. These workers say, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. The problem here was not necessarily for the first hour workers that they got a denarius. Because they understood that that's what they agreed to, and that was a fair day's wage, right? It was not, the problem was not that they only got a denarius. The problem was they worked harder than others, and the others got the same as them. It wasn't about what they got, it's about what others got. Do you see in the kingdom of heaven, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Well, as we've already seen, the kingdom of heaven is going to create a world in which those who work the hardest are going to be tempted to grumble and begrudge the generosity of God. If we've never felt that temptation, are we really living in a world with potential risks in the kingdom of heaven? Or are we just continuing to, as a church, kind of go on with the mentality of the kingdoms of the world? And maybe everyone gets what's fair according to the kingdoms of the world, and we never really have to wrestle with that. Or do things go on in our faith community that make the hardest workers begrudge the grace of God? 
what is the master of the house's response? He replies to one of them saying, friend, which is interesting. He addresses these workers as friend. I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Yes, we did, but that's not the problem, is what they're thinking. The problem is not that you gave me a denarius. The problem is I worked harder than all of them, and you gave them what you owed me. Pay them less. They're not even asking for more money. And what does the master of the house say? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And Jesus reminds them, the last will be first. And the first will be last. Now, this all sounds, I think, for us great, right? God is generous. We like the idea of that, except, and as a church, and the influence that that can have, except, I think that gets complicated and changes when churches buy properties and have budgets. Then all of a sudden, in the name of good stewardship and taking care of our facilities, we cut people off because they could be at risk for our facilities or they could be at risk at complicating our budget. And they didn't work like we worked to build this church. If we're doing that, I'm not completely discouraged. Why? If that happens in our hearts, it means we might be living into the kingdom of heaven. If we're not living into the, king, in the kingdom of heaven, none of this self-centeredness will ever be in our hearts challenged at all. We will just create a nice world for you to come to church every single Sunday and have everything you could ever imagine and want. And we will treat you like members of a golf club that pays its dues and has its rights. There may be some of you that have worked harder than anyone else in this church. That may be. And we want to thank God for that. But our king will give to the last just as much as he gives to the first. His grace is the same. And is grace really ever fair? <laughs> Who of us here this morning, I don't, it doesn't matter how long you've been at Calvary. Who of us here this morning can say, grace was given to me fairly? <laughs> May it never be. All the grace we have ever received from God is completely undeserved. Pure mercy, pure grace. It is a grace that he has not left us to ourselves. 
What's interesting, though, as we think about how this parable connects to the other two parts of our text, we have the parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like, and then we have this prophecy of Jesus and his being handed over to being mocked, flogged, crucified, and then resurrects, and then is resurrected. And then you have the story of James and John's mother asking Jesus what kind of status her sons can have in the kingdom of heaven. Why, though, this prophecy sandwiched in the middle of that? Why the prophecy? What I think Matthew is trying to tell us is that the king of the kingdom of heaven isn't just blowing hot air when he says the last will be first. What Matthew is trying to tell us is that the king of the kingdom of heaven was even himself willing to make himself last. None of us went to the cross. None of us were asked to do that. But the king of the kingdom of heaven who says that the last shall be first said, I will be the first to be last. I will go to the cross. I will suffer mockery and shame and be laughed at be flogged and crucified. The crucifixion, though it clearly was an extremely painful death, was in a sense almost worse the most humiliating death. The Son of God proved that he was in fact one with the Father precisely because he was humble. He did not account equality with God. He went the way of mockery. He went the way of being flogged and crucified. Jesus' divinity is evidenced in his possession of power and authority, and his response to that was that he emptied himself. He did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, Paul says. He was first, but made himself last for our sake. I think that's what Matthew is trying to tell us as he's creating this story, is that in the kingdom of heaven, even the king will make himself last. So what does that mean for his followers? Jesus never graduates from the school of being a lamb only to possess the school of the lion. No, he eternally and always will be the lion and the lamb for our sake. And what's interesting as we kind of bring this now to conclusion is how the next part of the story plays in because I think this could almost be laughable if it wasn't so close to home. Jesus goes on to his explanation in the kingdom of heaven that the last will be first and that Jesus is the essence of what it means to be last. And then the very next scene is James and John's mother saying, well, where on the first spectrum will my two sons be? Like, I get all that, but... In the end of the day, like, where will my boys be? To your right and to your left, right? And it would be funny 
except that's all of us. As we hear this, that the kingdom of heaven is about the lasts, not about the first, we leave reading this thinking that's a nice cliche of Jesus, but it really shouldn't affect my everyday life. I mean, this is where it gets incredibly complicated. Because in the end of the day, we really do want to know where do we fit. I mean, I'll make some sacrifices, but I sure hope those sacrifices I make will be recognized by someone. Right? And if I make those sacrifices, what kind of opportunities will that give me in the church? We have an opportunity to pursue in this life being first. That is an option for us. And the kingdoms of this world have given us a great example of what that can look like. You can potentially earn a lot of power and fame in this life. But you will do that at the expense of another promise when both James and Peter tell us to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And as Peter says, at the proper time, he will what? He will exalt you. If we pursue the kingdoms of this world and the pride that goes with it, we will do it at the expense of the exaltation from the Father. Because the way to exaltation from the Father on that last day is to humble ourselves. To not make claims or not to make ownership, but to realize that everyone who has received grace is last. Our identity, not only as individuals, should be as last, but as a collected church, do we see ourselves in this community and the community surrounding us as the last of the organizations? Or do we think the only time we interact with organizations and the community around us is on our terms? Would we ever consider going on their terms and listen to them and be priests to them to bless them and to understand them? Would we, would we be willing in a community to be the last to serve and to love. The last thing I want to share is that we actually have an example of this. Do you guys remember the story of Jonah? I, I think we have this understanding that Jonah was kind of scared of the Ninevites, and that's, they were powerful and very violent, and so he was scared of the Ninevites and didn't want to go to the Ninevites because he was scared of what they would do to him. That's not why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Do we know why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, and the narrative never changes even to the end. He, the story of Jonah ends with him bitter and God almost mocking him due to his bitterness. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he knew that God would be forgiving to Ninevites. That's why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Listen to Jonah. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, now this is Jonah speaking to God. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? So even before you asked me the very first time, isn't this what I said you would do? That is why I made the flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are gracious God and merciful. I knew that you are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. And because of that, if I go to Nineveh and let them know that there is a God like that, they will believe in you and you will forgive them. And I have been a faithful Jew from the day I was born. I have worked harder. And surely these Ninevites don't get the blessings of Abraham like I deserve. How often and how deceitfully it is for us as a church even to think we've done so much to build this up that we now have rights and claims to make Is the real reason we're sometimes not open to God doing things we would never imagine or think because new people will come here that will take our spot? When we've worked so hard. Those are questions we have to ask ourselves, right? Because if we're really living into the kingdom of heaven, these are the questions we'll be faced with. We should not be discouraged by those feelings or these questions, if that's you. Because it means we're asking the right questions. When the first, excuse me, when the last are first and the first are last, those who work the hardest are tempted to begrudge the generosity of God. When the last are first and the first are last, God himself assumes the place of last. And when we see the doubt from James and John and their mother about who will take care of them in the kingdom, when the last are first and the first last, we are tempted to believe that Christ will not take care of us. But he will. You do not need to find out if you are going to be at Jesus' right or left hand in the kingdom of God. He will take care of you. You are his child. He may give the same, though, to you he gives to others. If you're not okay with that, you're not trusting the king of the kingdom of heaven. If you're okay with that, if you're okay with that, then what you're showing is a heart that's truly been transformed by the spirit of that king. May it be for all of us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we are humbled that you would so see fit to offer us mercy and grace. May we never, may we never think of the grace we have received as now a right that we have to claim over and against 
anyone else. But may you allow us and empower us to see the grace that you gave to us as the grace we want to see everyone else receive. May our hearts, may our church be motivated by a desire for everyone we see around us to receive the same grace we received and no less. May you use us as your people to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.